This episode of Wrestle Central is dedicated to the memory of Grant Berkland, also known as Danny Havoc. From bell to bell and post to post. We got a big battle in front of us, baby. It is just stop. So let's get fucking like a monkey. Working the territories on the Northwest Coast. Who wants to walk with Elias? You're listening to Wrestle Central. Give me a hell yeah. On Sportsnet 650. You got a journalism for that? With Justin Morissette. Another, another truck pulling up to Daly's place. Hey, wait a minute. Oh, my God. Wait just a minute. Jax Harwood and Cash Wheeler. FTR. What are they doing here? I think they can't fight. <laughs> but who? They have had a war of words with the Young Bucks for years. No. Butcher and Blade finding the... FTR are bad dudes. Getting set up. This teamwork. Dangerous teamwork. Oh! FTR with a spike pile driver on Blade. Yes, that's right. The gentlemen formerly known as The Revival make their debut in AEW in a week where Iron Mike Tyson goes head to head with Chris Jericho in the main event segment. A pretty hot dynamite on Wednesday, I thought. Started strong and ended strong, coming off of a very strong pay-per-view, of course, last Saturday that we talked about on the program right here this time last week. My name is Justin Morris. That, as the man told you, welcome to another edition of Wrestle Central, talking about everything that happened in the week that was in professional wrestling. If you've got questions, if you've got opinions on what just happened, uh, you know, whether it was on Dynamite or SmackDown or Raw, or heck, even NXT was very strong this week, I would love to hear from you. Give me a call at 604-280-0650. I'll put you straight on the air to chat with me. Or you can hit up the Sportsnet text line at 650-650. Love to uh, get some interactions that way as well. And in fact, it's funny that we would start there because I feel like that's exactly where the show ended last week. I got a last-minute text message right as I was trying to wrap things up asking me if I was disappointed that the revival did not debut uh, during the stadium stampede match that concluded Double or Nothing, AEW Saturday pay-per-view last weekend. And the answer was no, because I did have a feeling that what we saw on Wednesday was what we were going to get. If you were going to have the baby faces actually come out on top, you want them to do that on their own volition. You do not want outside assistance in taking down the elite, uh, or rather taking down uh, Chris Jericho's inner circle. You want the elite to be able to do that themselves. And, you know, you don't... I, I, I mean, I was kind of surprised, I guess, actually, on Wednesday, that when the... Uh, the the revival, I guess they're called FTR now, and what that stands for is uh, up for your interpretation. But uh, judging by the T-shirt that went up in the AEW shop this week, it's uh, F the rest at the moment. It was going to be Fear the Revolt, but there is another tag team out there on the indies already, already using uh, the, the name The Revolt. And so they got hit with a cease and desist before they'd even made their AEW debuts, and they don't actually have a meaning, I guess, right now uh, for what those initials actually stand for. Uh, They cannot use the name The Revival. That's caught up in WWE copyright. They cannot use the name The Revolt, which is what they were planning to use. Right now, they are simply FTR, and I had kind of thought that they would come in as heels, to be perfectly honest with you, because that is the role that they are very, very good at playing. They were basically heels for the entirety of their NXT and WWE runs. They really never got a run as babyfaces other than some light comedy stuff where they technically were still heels uh, back, I guess, earlier this year or last year. It would have been last year when they were doing the the, the Usi Hot kind of comedy stuff and their Usos feud shaving each other's backs so on, etc. Terrible, just terrible material, the kind of material that made them want to jump ship in the first place because these are two guys who turned down lofty 
pricey extensions to remain with WWE. It was not about money for them. It was about artistic uh, integrity and being able to control what part of the creative you actually can control. These guys were not happy with the roles that they were being put in on Raw and SmackDown, and already just you know one segment into their careers with AEW seemed to be poised for big things. They debuted as babyfaces coming out to rescue the Young Bucks. Yes, we have been teased forever with a Young Bucks versus the Revival feud. These teams have been jawing back and forth on Twitter for years, even when they were in opposite companies, when the Revival were still in NXT even, I feel like they were going back and forth with the Young Bucks as far as trying to uh, tease out a rivalry there. But uh, I I don't know that we're going to get that immediately. They seem to be on the same page as things began on Wednesday night. Of course, uh, the Revival you heard in the intro there is commentated on by Excalibur Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone. Uh, We're getting beat down by Butcher and Blade after their match that opened up Dynamite on Wednesday night, a six-man tag team match, the Revival, uh, or rather the Young Bucks teaming up with Matt Hardy to take on Private Party and Joey Janela. Kind of like a throwback, honestly. There was a good little while there, maybe earlier in the year, uh, maybe back towards the end of 2019. It's so hard to remember, honestly, uh, timelines and chronologies right now because I do feel like quarantine and, and this isolation period and and you know everything that we've gone through with COVID nineteen has warped my perception of time. Uh, but I do believe that earlier this year, in the lead up to the COVID shutdown, we did get a good run of dynamites where every single show pretty well opened with a six man tag team match of some kind involving some very high level workers. You know back. In the early stages of the year, it would quite often be Kenny Omega or, or Hangman Adam Page taking on whoever they were taking on, probably Santana and Ortiz and a, a sixth man from the uh, inner circle, perhaps. Regardless, we would get these strong six-man tag team matches to open up Dynamite with a ton of energy right off the hop, and I did feel like that's what the show had this week as well. You know, a very meaningless throwaway tag team match, definitely. I mean, I don't know that we're ever going to see the guys that were on the other side of that thing uh, tag together again in a, in a meaningful way ever again in Joey Janela and Private Party kind of thrown together. But, you know, we haven't seen a whole heck of a lot of the Young Bucks lately. Those are two guys that did not make the tapings, were not on those shows uh, that took place during, of course, the, the tapings that they did that ran for the entirety of the months of uh, March and April, predominantly. Uh, they were not a part of those, so uh, we didn't get to see them then. So, yeah, I, I did think there was actually a ton of appeal to putting the Young Bucks right out the gate on this thing. It was a ton of fun, actually. So uh, I, I, I had a good time with Dynamite. I know a lot of people complained, actually, about the way the show ended, and that would be Chris Jericho coming face-to-face with Iron Mike Tyson. Tyson flanked by a number of former UFC fighters. Too many guys for me to name right now, and I'm honestly not that familiar with the UFC, so I couldn't even tell you a whole lot about them, even if I did name all of them. But Mike Tyson flanked by a bunch of UFC guys getting into it with Chris Jericho and the Inner Circle after the Inner Circle had themselves uh, a pep rally despite losing (laughs) the stadium stampede match last Saturday night. It is Wrestle Central. My name is Justin Morissette. You're listening to Sportsnet 650, Vancouver's only professional wrestling radio program. And I actually really like the Tyson segment. Was Tyson himself a bit of a cornball? Yes, absolutely he was. Was Tyson... uh, Looking like he was going to burst out laughing at any moment uh, that, you know, he might have been even under the influence of something. He certainly seemed like he might have been under the influence during Double or Nothing when he was, uh, you know, oscillating back and forth between being very engaged in the uh, Cody and Lance Archer match and yawning in his ringside seat and, and basically being completely checked out. He was a giggling mess, basically, on Wednesday night. Could not tear his own shirt off. Uh, as he was getting into it and getting in the face of Chris Jericho, he was not really necessarily believable with the lines that he was spitting out and looked like he was on the verge of laughter time and time again. And yet, despite all of that, I really liked the segment. I thought it was very, very strong, actually. Uh, I thought that Chris Jericho, Chris Jericho is, you know, just a, a big, big star. It was, I mean, Jim Ross talked about it in the uh, the video reel that opened 
the uh, stadium stampede match during Double or Nothing last Saturday night. That in retrospect, as you look at how everything came together for this company right out of the gate last year, and it's hard to believe that we are only one year into AEW at this point. It feels like they've been around much longer. And I guess culturally, when you go back to both being the elite and All In and Bullet Club and so on, etc., they have actually been around for much, much longer than that. But as a company, just been one year. But as you look at how things came together, Jim Ross said it in the video package, Chris Jericho might be the single most important signing that this company has made. This is a, a sign. This is a guy who put this company in, in a lot of ways on the map. And when you have that stature, when you have, uh, you know, a run so far in AEW that has seen you dominate, maybe not necessarily results wise, you know, Chris Jericho isn't winning every single match, but sure. Just surely from an entertainment value standpoint, my God, the man is uh, just delivering banger after banger after banger with these with these promo segments, with these, uh, you know, uh, with the pep rally even that we saw on Wednesday, with all the pomp and circumstance that he has surrounded the inner circle. This is an act that really, really works. This is an act that was delivering comedy gold on Wednesday night. I love the idea that the heels, of course, ordered themselves a bunch of championship T-shirts with the assumption that they were going to win the match, something that we see in sports all the time, of course. At the end of every Stanley Cup, at the end of every Super Bowl, there are boxes and boxes and boxes of championship merchandise for the team that loses, and it all gets sent off to Africa. We never ever see it of course it's just weird bizarro sports merchandise that uh, kids in african villages get to get to wear basically on a day-to-day basis uh, um for them to do that and really milk some comedy out of it i absolutely loved that segment but what i was going to say is like where do you go from here if you're chris jericho you've already been the AEW champion you've already been in the top feud that has basically dominated the majority of television from the very beginning of dynamite right up until this past Saturday at Double or Nothing, and that is, you know, the elite versus the inner circle, uh, a, a feud that in one shape or another has basically dominated AEW right from the beginning. It looks like we got some finality to that feud on Saturday with the stadium stampede match. They are not in a hurry to come right back out and do the elite versus the inner circle all over again. So you need another faction kind of to turn your attention towards, and... Is Iron Mike Tyson and his uh, cadre of former UFC fighters going to be the faction that provides that next great foil for the inner circle? I honestly don't know where this goes. I don't know if this is heading towards Mike Tyson uh, pulling uh, you know, a, a wrestler to represent him in a fight against Chris Jericho, and that's how we get to this next feud. It would kind of feel weird for Jericho, or rather for Tyson, to have to pick someone to fight on his behalf, given... Uh, the shape he's in, the history he has, and uh, just even even the pop culture imprint that he has right now. We've been seeing these videos of Tyson working out and getting ready to come back for a fight against you know somebody. I don't know that it's been announced who as of yet. If it has in the last week, my apologies. Uh, but regardless, th- that feels like a bit of an odd conclusion. But do I also want to see Chris Jericho take on Mike Tyson in a wrestling match? No, not at all. Do I want to see Chris Jericho continue to bounce off of Mike Tyson in these kind of live promo uh, segments on television? Yes, that I very much do want because Jericho has this larger-than-life persona. He is a comic book villain, essentially. The, the size of the man's ego uh, when he's playing heel is just tremendously entertaining and wonderful And was Tyson necessarily the perfect guy to go back and forth with on the mic? No, but he did have that kind of outsized comic energy that a guy like Jericho needs to bounce off of. I thought Jericho was wonderful during that main event segment on Wednesday. I had a ton of time, uh, a ton of fun watching that, a great time watching it. Uh, The weird thing, though, is when you break down the ratings as far as what was the best received thing on Dynamite this past Wednesday night. You know, I I had a great conversation this past week uh, with my podcast co-host Josh Custodio on the Top Marks podcast. I don't always find time to squeeze every single topic that I want to talk about 
in the world of wrestling into this one-hour program here, Wrestle Central on Sportsnet 650. Occasionally, I uh, I talk wrestling on the World Wide Web as well. And Josh was raising a very valid concern, I thought, uh, about the fact that you know you you might be running the risk of overexposing a guy like Orange Cassidy. We all love Orange Cassidy. Uh, the internet seems to love Orange Cassidy. I've mentioned on this very program before the fact that anytime I tweet something about Orange Cassidy, uh, the the response that I get, the engagements that I get on those tweets from casual wrestling fans, from people that aren't interested in wrestling at all, to my knowledge anyways, uh, always uh, you know outpaces anything else wrestling-related that I post on Twitter. Uh, but there is a concern, I guess, of overexposing Orange Cassidy and and having too many Orange Cassidy matches uh, in consecutive weeks of television and perhaps people um, losing their luster, losing the allure of uh, wanting to tune in and see this guy week after week after week, especially when you're putting him in prominent match positions uh, in consecutive dynamites. You know, I do feel like Orange Cassidy is a guy that should be a pay-per-view attraction. He should be in the role that he kind of was heading into Revolution. You know, he had that wonderful match with Pac that I think stole the show for a lot of people who tuned in to watch that pay-per-view and and probably surprised a lot of people as well. I don't know that there were a ton of people going into that show. When you look at that matchup on paper, a guy like, uh, you know, the formerly Adrian Neville or Neville in WWE and Pac taking on the guy who's supposed to be a lazy bum in Orange Cassidy, I think people probably felt that that was a a technical mismatch. But, you know, to quote the great Zack Sabre Jr., Orange Cassidy actually does have the techers to beat you, mate. He certainly does. He is a very, very impressive wrestler when he puts in the effort to be that. The thing is, he's a classic slacker. He is Spicoli in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He is any number of, of, uh, you know, oafish characters in popular culture that you might be familiar with. The guy uh, has the talent to shine when he wants to, but he does not have the work ethic to put in the work to do it on a consistent basis. It's like uh, the Blues Brothers. you got to make him mad enough to take off his sunglasses, and once the glasses are off, all bets are off. The problem is, if you go to that well too many times, it stops feeling special. However... The point that I'm driving at here is, as much as it might feel like Orange Cassidy is getting overexposed on AEW television right now, he's getting huge responses. When you break down the segment-by-segment ratings that Dynamite drew in this week, and it did outperform NXT yet again, though NXT did quite well, relatively, uh, at least in terms of how it has been doing of late, And that's because it had a very well-promoted card this week. The way that they were hammering uh, what was to come on NXT this past Monday on Raw even got me to tune in and watch NXT this week. And I haven't watched NXT in months and months and months. But Timothy Thatcher versus Matt Riddle inside a cage? (laughs) You bet your darn tootin' butt I'm gonna watch that. Uh, And I did, and it was a lot of fun. Regardless, numbers were up for NXT. Numbers were also up for AEW coming off of Double or Nothing. Double or Nothing, or rather, AEW Dynamite wins the week in the ratings war, uh, down south anyways, uh, where there actually is a direct Wednesday night head-to-head competition. We, of course, get NXT in a condensed one-hour form on Sportsnet 360 before SmackDown on Friday nights. And I actually do enjoy watching it that way, getting the best of the show in a more digestible format instead of uh, going through what can occasionally be a slog. I don't always feel like NXT always earns the full two-hour time slot necessarily. There's always a little bit of filler in there relative to just how it used to be a tight, compact 46-minute show on the WWE Network that always delivered the goods. Part of why I think I've tuned out a little bit is because I don't feel like it delivers that near often enough anymore. But in the segment-to-segment breakdowns for Dynamite and how Dynamite did right across the night, the top-rated segment on Dynamite was the Battle Royal for the shot at taking on Cody to uh, have the very first shot at the TNT Championship on television next week. Of course, uh, Jungle Boy was the one who wound up winning that match, and that is, uh, of, of course, uh, Jack Perry, the son of actor Luke Perry, the uh, the late Luke Perry. His son is now in the wrestling business, just 22 years old, coming off the match of his life on Saturday night against MJF on pay-per-view. And you know what? I actually did go back yesterday and watch Double or Nothing again In full, I didn't go back and watch a specific match. I watched the entirety of the four-hour pay-per-view from front to back, 
And I cannot remember the last time that I did that in a very long time, but it was a very good show. Regardless, I keep getting sidetracked on all these diverging paths, talking about all these things related to Double or Nothing or AEW. The number one related segment, uh, the number one rated segment, rather, was the Battle Royal, but specifically the moment that Orange Cassidy entered the Battle Royal until the moment that he was knocked out of it. That was the highest peak of the entirety of the night of Dynamite on Wednesday. People tuned in specifically to see Orange Cassidy, and the moment he was out of the ring, they flipped back to whatever else they were watching. I think that's incredible. Orange Cassidy, on a night where you have promised and teased Mike Tyson all night long, on a night where you debut a brand new tag team making the jump over from WWE in the revival, your number one rated thing on the show is Orange Cassidy, freshly squeezed OC, the lazy bones himself. You love it, folks. You have to love to see that the audience is latching on to a new character to the extent that they are. And if you're AEW, I don't know. I don't, do you? I mean, they kind of teased it a little bit on Wednesday night. You had Orange Cassidy walk through uh, the back during the Inner Circle's backstage promo and, and Chris Jericho taking exception to Orange Cassidy interrupting him and, and getting very mad about uh, you know anybody sticking their nose where it doesn't belong. Maybe that is somewhere you go. I just mentioned you know talking about needing a big personality, needing uh, all these things that fit right for Chris Jericho to have a foil to bounce off of. When you think about the overall energy that Jericho exudes and what he's been doing that really connects with people of late, I do think the idea of Jericho... Uh, you know, going head-to-head with Orange Cassidy and maybe the inner circle going head-to-head with the best friends and uh, perhaps throw some additional figures in there to balance out the numbers five-on-five, there might be something there. Uh, I could really get into that. Uh, That that might be an elevation of Orange Cassidy where you are not risking uh, overexposing him necessarily. Uh, You're putting him in the exact spot that people want to see him because people are tuning in to see this guy much more than they are tuning in to see Iron Mike Tyson. Maybe, Maybe if you really want ratings, the guy that Mike Tyson should have been confronting all along was Orange Cassidy. Just, uh... You know, kind of a strange spot there that that would be the segment that drew the eyeballs more than anything when you consider everything that went on uh, with AEW on Dynamite this past week, their show coming out of the pay-per-view. Meanwhile, WWE building towards a pay-per-view of their own. We've got backlash on the horizon, or as its imaging is starting to make it look like, uh, the greatest match of all time or the greatest match ever, however they're selling it. Backlash, yes, it's got that slogan all over its art at this point to the, to the point where it looks like that is the name of the pay-per-view, the greatest match ever. Uh, they're singing, you know, the, the, that song from The Greatest Showman every time they talk about it, too. It is just outrageous, the gimmicky branding that's going into this thing right now. But uh, uh, speaking of a team that debuted on AEW television in the revival, there was another guy who we thought might be making the jump over to AEW from WWE, and that was Drew Gulak, whose contract recently expired, and WWE cut off talks after he asked for a raise, and they did not want to give it to him. Drew Gulak did re-sign this week with WWE, and he was on SmackDown on Friday night, and I gotta say... I know that they were going for a big storyline thing. They had all kinds of uh, intrigue backstage to kick off their new whodunit for this summer. WWE seemingly cannot get away from uh, doing a big show-long mystery angle uh, every single summer. Uh, Last year, it was who ran over Roman Reigns, which was just an interminable angle that seemed to run on forever, especially for me as someone who went to SummerSlam last year, attended all four nights at Scotiabank Arena in Toronto, NXT TakeOver, SummerSlam, Monday Night Raw, and Tuesday Night SmackDown when SmackDown was still on Tuesday. Four shows in a row, folks. I cannot tell you how many times I had to sit through that video package about who ran over Roman Reigns, and by the time the weekend was over, I was no further in that mystery. I could not tell you uh, who did it. Of course, we uh, know who did it in the end. It was Eric Rowan, a guy who's no longer in the company. So that was, of course, an angle that was so important, had such a meaningful uh, impression and and all that, that, uh, you know, the impact was over. Uh, I guess, I mean, as soon as Rowan made the jump over to Raw and they gave him that giant spider gimmick, that was kind of 
the beginning of the end, more or less, on that one. Uh, this one, somebody ran over Elias in the SmackDown parking lot uh, this past Friday night. It uh, was framed to look like Jeff Hardy did it. I have a lot of thoughts on this angle in general and just how tasteless it is in a number of ways. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of into the mystery a little bit, but the way this was set up and the way it was filmed – not feeling it. I'll get into my thoughts on this a little bit later on in the show. Right now, I do want to talk about Drew Gulak, however, because it is Gulak who is rumored to be leaving the company. It is Gulak who a lot of people, I think myself included, expected to pop up on Double or Nothing last weekend uh, on AEW's pay-per-view and perhaps continue that wave into AEW television this past week. Instead, he was just on SmackDown. He was just with Daniel Bryan as a guy in the backstage area. I know that he didn't technically leave the company and he was only off of television for one week after he was knocked out of the IC title tournament. However, however, I do feel like it is a mistake not to have done more with that re-debut. You know, when you are in an era where you are taking your audience so seriously or treating them with enough respect, I should say, that... You know, uh, a guy like Seth Rollins can just embrace what his persona is online. You know, fans hate Seth Rollins because he's said to be, uh, you know, the corporate uh, mouthpiece in the locker room who's just spewing corporate speak, trying to uh, unwind any tensions in the locker room at any given time. I mean, this sort of heel persona was born out of what we heard coming out of the last set of Saudi Arabia shows, uh, the one last year anyways, where the plane was grounded and the SmackDown crew was stuck uh, with a number of the people from Raw as well in Saudi Arabia for 24 hours after that plane was supposed to go off, uh, was take off rather. SmackDown, uh, the majority of the roster missed the TV taping the very next night. That was the night that the NXT invasion kicked off to really uh, send things towards Survivor Series last year, coming out of the end of October into early November. After that night, we heard Seth Rollins uh, allegedly gave a speech in the locker room uh, telling people that they shouldn't be voicing their complaints online. They should try to handle everything internally, blah, blah, blah. All this bootlicking stuff that makes him seem like a corporate stooge. Fans pushed back against that. And WWE, to their credit, embraced that persona for Seth on television. They made that his on-screen character. If you're going to you know, go the distance and acknowledge what the dirt sheets are reporting and what your fan base believes, then you should also embrace the fact that your fan base knows that Drew Gulak is gone and create some mystery there. You know, uh, Daniel Bryan is in trouble. Who's going to come out and save him? He's got nobody. Gulak is gone. Wait a second. That's Drew Gulak's music. He comes in and makes a big return save at a pay-per-view. I'm just spitballing here, but you could have done something. You could have made a moment out of Drew Gulak, uh, you know, officially being re-signed, officially being back in WWE, officially being back to help his friend Daniel Bryan. Instead, I feel like they kind of let that moment slip. They just treated him like some other guy who was only gone for a week. If you uh, didn't read the sheets, you would have never known that there was even any contract dispute at all it never played out on television. It never was acknowledged in any way. He was simply backstage being Daniel Bryan's friend. I don't even think he had any speaking lines uh, in all of the backstage segments this week. So is it the biggest problem in the world? Is it the biggest drop ball? Is it the you know something that they're going to be kicking themselves or staying up at night about? No, this is small potatoes in the large scheme because Daniel Bryan isn't even really a prominent player necessarily at the moment, though it does seem like he might be about to win the Intercontinental Championship. If not him, then certainly AJ Styles. But uh, it would have been fun. Would have been a, would have been something because there are people who are a lot more invested in Drew Gulak than I think WWE realizes, and maybe they did realize that when there was pushback as far as the idea of letting him walk. Uh, when we come back, going to talk more about that mystery angle that kicked off on SmackDown, and we might even hear. Uh, from our friend Jimmy Corderas as well, who spoke to our network friends in Toronto at the Fan 590 late last week about his memories of Owen Hart. Plenty to dive into, so don't go anywhere. A lot yet to come. It is the only home of professional wrestling talk on the radio here in Vancouver. I'm Justin Morissette, and you're listening to Wrestle Central on Sportsnet 650.
pick yourself up off the mat. It's time for more Wrestle Central on Sportsnet 650 with Justin Morissette. This is Elias' theme music. How many people out there even knew Elias had theme music? Of course, always sings himself out to the ring with his own guitar. We very rarely get to hear this. Almost never wins matches either, so we would very rarely get to hear this uh, in celebration after a victory either. But yes, it was Elias who found himself taken out of action this week, uh, removed from the Intercontinental title tournament that was set to continue on SmackDown this week. Uh, It was a hit-and-run collision. SmackDown opened kind of wildly on Friday night on Sportsnet 360, and I think WWE is trying to capitalize on uh, the, you know, insanity of the news reports that we're seeing coming out of the United States right now. Chaotic uh, kind of scenes in the streets. That's kind of what we got to open the show on Friday night. Renee Young acting like uh, our fearless, intrepid reporter out there in front of the Performance Center on Friday after Elias had been struck by a vehicle during a hit and run. And whoever did it framed Jeff Hardy to make it look like a a DUI incident and uh, mentioned earlier before we hit the break there that I had some, you know, some trepidations felt like this was not the best way to go uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, I just, I don't like it when they trivialize Jeff Hardy's uh, struggles and his inner demons. This is a man who has had uh, a great deal of difficulty remaining sober over the years. This is a man who has been involved in numerous DUIs. This is a man who has had to check himself into rehab and miss significant time uh, from his career uh, in pretty much every company that he's ever worked in. You know, he was an absolute mess at one point in TNA when they were trying to position him as the top guy, uh, you know, basically wrecked that company by uh, destroying himself before a pay-per-view main event against Sting. And that is a very serious thing. That is not something that should be trivialized in any way. You know, I don't like it when they put Jeff Hardy in a feud and whoever is his uh, opposing heel, whether that is, uh, you know, uh, Samoa Joe or uh, Randy Orton or Sheamus or any number of people who've done this in the past, have been written to do this, I should say, uh, you know, make some kind of crack about his alcoholism, chug a beer in front of him. You know, this is not... It's not good. This is not. Uh, this is not tasteful. This is actually classless in a, in a number of different ways. And I'm not a big fan of even using that word. Honestly, I feel like it gets thrown around and done to death on the internet. Um, but you know, using an uh, open bottle of alcohol and pouring it all over the car and pouring it all over Jeff Hardy to frame him for this, uh, you know, would be DUI hit and run. It just leaves a bad taste in my mouth and. It depends where we're going with this, but I don't see any neat, tidy resolution here uh, that's going to justify invoking the real-world things that they've invoked necessarily. Um, You know, uh, I I want to look forward to these overarching mystery angles. You know, I I did kind of enjoy last year's one, even though I said it was interminable and I, you know, was so sick and tired of that who tried to run over Roman Reigns' video package by the end of that summer, never mind by the end of SummerSlam weekend. I did like where that ended up. I did really, really like, actually, uh, the the tornado tag match that we got out of that. Daniel Bryan and Roman Reigns uh, versus Eric Rowan and Luke Harper on pay-per-view. I thought that was just a tremendous match, one of the best WWE pay-per-view matches of last year, if, uh, if I'm being completely honest. But... That, that did have some bumps along the way. Obviously, uh, there were some big-time bumps in the uh, Kurt Angle mystery as to who his son was, what was going on with Jason Jordan, and then Jason Jordan suffered basically a career-ending injury right at the conclusion of that one. So they haven't necessarily had the best luck with these mystery angles of late. And, hey, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I'll see where they're going. After a week last week where SmackDown was very much just a pure wrestling show, four wrestling matches to fill out the entire program, uh, this one was much more story-driven, much more story-focused, and a lot of that story focus was entirely 
on the intercontinental title scene. There was basically no Braun Strowman on this show. There was basically no uh, Miz and Morrison on this show. They got their match set up last week. We'll probably see them again next week, and that's totally fine because they're setting something else, setting something else up, I should say, in the SmackDown mid-card, which largely does get ignored. And who knows, maybe uh, the hacker will uh, reveal the truth on this one as well, that this is just another mystery uh, to fuel the SmackDown hacker storyline. We will wait and see. I'm fully willing to see where this goes, but right out the gate triggered the no feeling for me in a huge, huge way and removed both Jeff Hardy and Elias from the IC title tournament. Instead, they uh, had a... A battle royal to determine who would be reinserted into the tourney, and it was Sheamus who eventually lost to Daniel Bryan. Uh, Daniel Bryan will face AJ Styles for that Intercontinental Championship belt. Whether it happens next week or in a few weeks at the pay-per-view remains to be seen. I would imagine they stretch this one out to the PPV and probably invoke some goofy storyline weirdness along the way to make that happen. But uh, before we call it a night tonight... I talked a little bit last week on the show about uh, last week's Dark Side of the Ring uh, season finale. Season two wrapped up with an episode on Owen Hart that was just absolutely heart-wrenching. No pun intended. Just the saddest episode that the show has aired to date. And there have been some awfully sad topics that Dark Side has tackled in the last two years uh, that have really tugged at the heartstrings. None more than the series finale or season finale for season two uh, with Owen Hart, telling the Owen Hart story. And uh, one person who was involved in that show as a talking head, uh, giving his perspective on that night, was the man who was in the ring as referee getting set for the match where Owen died. And that is my Sportsnet colleague, Jimmy Corderas. He is one of the hosts of Aftermath on Sportsnet 360. You can see him uh, after Sportsnet uh, uh, wraps up their WWE block every single week on Friday nights. And he joined the boys on the Sportsnet 590 The Fan Morning Show last week to talk about Owen Hart and so much more. Here's Jimmy Corderas with Mike Zygamanis, Scott MacArthur, and Hugh Burrell. I wanted to let you hear this because uh, some great stories from Jimmy. And uh, as much as I would have liked to bring him on the show myself, I don't want to send a guy down memory lane to explore one of the worst nights of his life uh, more than he really has to. So, Here it is, a great conversation, Jimmy Corderas with The Morning Show on 590 The Fan. I remember hearing a gasp from the crowd. What do you mean Owen failed? He goes, Owen just failed. There was Owen, he was like laying in the ring, like face up. This really real? I said something's wrong. It was unnecessary, it didn't need to happen. If someone doesn't just fall from the top of an arena, something went wrong. Uh, Hugh Burrell will jump into studio with us uh, for the next segment, joining Ziggy and me and Jimmy Corderas, former WWE referee, now working for Sportsnet, one of the co-hosts of Aftermath on Sportsnet, uh, Sportsnet 360, uh, is our next guest. And you just heard Jimmy's voice, one of the ones quoted in the very latest episode of Vice TV's Dark Side of the Ring. And it details this particular episode, the the tragic death of the great... Owen Hart, which occurred 21, it's unbelievable to me, 21 years ago tomorrow. Owen was strapped into a harness in the ceiling of Kansas City's Kemper Arena. He was to make a grand entrance playing a character called the Blue Blazer. Uh, The harness, uh, the clip of the harness snapped, and Owen very tragically uh, fell to his death in the ring. And Jimmy was to referee that match involving Owen Hart and witness the whole thing. And he is with us now to discuss that horrible day, but also uh, to discuss the happier times because Owen Hart was a hugely, hugely popular guy, a prankster, uh, the youngest sibling of 12, uh, Bret Hart, one of his older brothers, the great Bret Hart. Uh, Jimmy, great to have you on and uh, wish it was under better circumstances, but this is an important story. The Hart family matters so much coast to coast across Canada. Let's let's start with the sadness and the tragedy. 21 years ago tomorrow, what do you remember about that day leading up to the over-the-edge pay-per-view that night? Um, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it is. Um, it, 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 it's amazing to think it was 21 years ago, but 
going through the whole thing and reliving all this, um, trying to remember everything, things come back. Like, as you, as you asked me, the day of, it was just business as usual. I mean, like, you know, for myself, I get to the arena and I help set up the ring and, and I get my match assignment and it's Owen Hart versus Godfather, the blue blazer, you know, and got with the guys and went over the match. And as we know, it's predetermined. So, you know, I got my assignment for the day to find out what they wanted me to do. And uh, I was off doing other duties because at the time I was multitasking a lot there. And uh, um, my understanding was that he did uh, practice or rehearse that the, the the drop from the ceiling in the afternoon and everything was fine. That's That's what I heard. I didn't witness it. And when it came match time, there was a hardcore match that occurred right before their match. So I ran out to the ring to help them clear some of the debris out of the ring, like broken tables and that kind of stuff. So I was holding the top rope with my left hand, kicking some stuff out of the ring and moving towards that corner that, that ended up where, um, well, where Owen fell. And, you know, there was a, uh, an interview going on on the big Titan Tron with Owen on the screen, which was pre-recorded. And, um, just out of nowhere, it, instantaneously, I felt something brush against the side of my head on the right side of my right shoulder, and the top rope snapped out of my hand and came back, and I'm like, in, not understanding what's going on. At first, I thought the top rope had snapped, because, you know, it does happen. Uh, and then I turn around, and I see Owen laying in the ring, and I, I couldn't, you know what I mean? In the moment, you're in shock, and you can't put two and two together, and you're going like, what the heck is going on here? You know, uh, man. Jimmy Corderas, a former WWE referee, is with us, and we are uh, discussing the tragic events that led to Owen Hart's untimely death 21 years ago tomorrow. Owen was 34 years old at the time of his pass passing. I I don't I don't want to go too far down this road because then it it it, it just almost becomes clickbaity. I don't really know what the appropriate term for radio is jimmy but but owen has fallen and you turn around i'm sure you're stunned you see him do you immediately start waving for paramedics like how, how did that all how did that all play out i mean obviously he needed help as quickly as possible um yeah when i, I when i saw him there you know obviously confused i did go over and and look and i saw his eyes were wide open but there was just that ashen look on his face and i just i called i called out to him a couple of times to see if i get any kind of response and there was nothing and that's when i started uh uh yelling to the guys on headset to get people out here something's wrong and and just I didn't want to touch him or move him or anything because, again, I didn't know what was going on. So I just, the ring started filling up with, you know, uh, I guess EMTs and that sort of thing because they're always on standby in the back. And and just watch them work and still in shock. And they finally got him onto, <clears throat> excuse me, a stretcher. And when they did, they had one of those, um, uh, what do you call that, mask where they, they pump, they put, you know, with their hand, try to get him to breathe but some guy was performing someone was performing cpr like straddling on the stretcher while they were wheeling him out uh, so i just don't know why i did this i i scooped up his uh blue blazer cape and followed him to the back i still don't know why i picked it up I, it just i don't know and and watched them load him into the ambulance and just uh, like shaking i didn't you know hmm. Jimmy, you you mentioned the shock that you felt when, when this happened, and quite understandably so. M my question to you is, what was the, the vibe in the arena? Did the fans in attendance, did they know the seriousness of this? And further to that, the show continued. How shocked were you that they finished this night? Well, here's the thing. Uh the fans, I don't know how many noticed because um, I really wasn't, you know, I wasn't hearing them, if that makes sense. It, because, on, uh, like I said, on the, on the big screen with the arena dimmed, 
they were playing the interview on the screen, so I'm, I'm sure most of them were paying attention to that. I'm, and then uh, afterwards, um, like I said, when I was outside, uh, one of the crew guys had sat me down. I had the bad habit at the time of smoking. He, he just gave me a cigarette trying to calm me down. And one of our production people, uh, John D'Amico, comes up and he says, come on, we have to go. I got your stuff. And I said, go where? He says, well, we got to go get you checked out. I said, what do you mean checked out? I don't know. So they... They took me to, to, to the hospital to get checked out. They were, it was their concussion protocol. Because I still had to put two and two together with, uh, you know, what I felt brush against me and stuff like that. So I wasn't at the arena and didn't know that the show continued. I, you know, in my mind, I'm, I'm at, you know, yeah. at the same hospital with Owen and trying to get, asking people if they know anything and stuff like that. And that's where I found out that he had passed. Jimmy Corderas is with us, a former WWE referee, now a Sportsnet co-host of uh, Aftermath on Sportsnet 360. We're talking about the tragic passing and also the uh, celebrated life of the great Owen Hart, who died 21 years ago tomorrow in Kansas City's Kemper Arena. This is leadoff Sportsnet 590, the fan. So, Jimmy, as, as you and I have discussed, um, I'm a huge wrestling fan from back in that time. I love the Attitude Era. It was my late teens and early 20s years of my life, so very formative, and man, was wrestling hot. Um, I happened to be, and I might have to hand in my passport after I acknowledge this publicly, but I happened to be a de devout fan of Shawn Michaels, and so I, w I found myself rooting against the hearts uh, <laughs> in, in the late 90s. And Owen Hart on screen was a terrific agitator. And so, man, um, as somebody who rooted against the hearts, he did his job effectively for someone like me. Um, but I understood that that was a character. And behind the scenes, Owen was a prankster, a good-humored guy, a family guy. Tell us about Owen. Tell us about the person, the person, not the character, the person you got to know. Owen was, uh, in a nutshell, a breath of fresh air. Um, let's let's be honest here. You know, in in pro wrestling slash sports entertainment, you get a a wide variety of of characters and egos in that locker room. And Owen just was always in a good mood. Always wanted to be that guy to make the room laugh. He was having fun. Um, as much as he loved the wrestling business, though, he loved his family more. And the reason he did what he was doing and making that money was so that someday he could provide for his family. That's what, that was his end game. It wasn't, it wasn't to be the most recognized professional wrestler on the planet. It wasn't to be recognized as one of the best ever. It was to, he, not that he didn't love it. He loved it. It was, it was, it came so natural to him. It was, a. You know, he was often regarded as the most talented heart out of that huge family. And, uh, again, he, he he was, as you said, a classic ribber to keep the guys loose and fun. And none of his practical jokes or pranks were anything malicious. It was all good-natured, having fun, uh, not to hurt anybody. Just He was just a fun guy to be around. Hmm. I think of Brett. Uh, you know, who probably had the biggest name of, of all the hearts. But I just think of what he's been through, Owen's passing, and then his former tag team partner, Jim the Anvil Neidhart, has passed away in the last couple of years. And, and Jim Neidhart is the father of, of Natty, who is uh, still wrestling on, on the women's side in, in WWE. Well, Jim w married one of the Hart sisters, and the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, married one of the Hart sisters. So Brett has lost not only a brother, he has lost a couple of brothers in law. I just imagine there's a lot of weight and a lot of burden and a lot of sadness for him. Um, and I've just always viewed Brett sympathetically that way. He, he himself has been through a lot. Oh, absolutely. I, I think the entire family has. And, and, you know, and understandably, Brett took, took, you know the the loss of Owen, especially very um, uh, very hard, and and uh, who wouldn't? 
I mean, you know, they they were close as brothers. And and after, if people remember the infamous Montreal screw job, uh, with uh, what happened there and 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 the double cross on Brett. When Owen got to the ring, he was the guy who was the calming influence for Brett. You know, the guy who was there saying, you know what, Brett, at the end of the day, all this doesn't matter. You know, you're going to go down there. You're going to make a bunch of money. And he's trying to convince him, hey, this is going to make you a bigger star now. So Owen is that, again, that calming figure in a situation where there was a lot of pressure and a lot of tense feelings. There he is, Jimmy Corderas, in conversation with the boys from the leadoff on the Fan 590 Sportsnet Radio in Toronto. Uh, had a great time chatting with Jimmy uh, when I was in Toronto over SummerSlam weekend last week as well. Would love to get him on the show in the future, uh, but didn't want to make him have to uh, trudge down memory lane again to talk about one of the darkest nights of his life, I am sure. Uh, the night that Owen Hart passed away, of course, uh, thought that I would let you hear his conversation that he had with those fellas in Toronto. Some uh, some just heart-wrenching stuff, but some great memories of Owen as well, uh, who was only 34 years old when he passed away. And if he had hung on, that is one of the messages of that episode of Dark Side of the Ring, if he had just been around for one more year even, the the kind of guys who were coming into WWE at that time who were really impressive technical workers who would have been able to put on stupendous wrestling matches with a guy like Owen Hart. Um, you know, obviously when you lose someone that young and someone who uh, has a family and such a, a just a wonderful personality and, and a, a, you know, a charitable spirit, uh, the loss is enormous, and you know the matches that we lost from his wrestling career are, you know, the 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 least of the concerns as far as that goes. But uh, it was a point that was made by Chris Jericho, and uh, I have to echo it honestly. And in, in thinking about the kind of guys who were about to come into that company that would have pulled Owen back from the kind of wacky character stuff he was being forced to do during the Attitude Era. Uh, when wrestling was about to start to matter again. You know, if Owen had been able to work against someone like Kurt Angle or Eddie Guerrero or even Chris Jericho, uh, the the matches would have been really, really uh, stupendous. But uh, we will see what the week brings us this week. Of course, WWE reintroduced the crowd to their TV tapings this past week on both uh, NXT and Raw and SmackDown. There were people in the audience for the whole shebang. Uh, Kind of a... Weird approach. They did a little differently than uh, AEW has. They put them behind hockey glass, and it's, it was a little bit distracting, I found, on Monday Night Raw. We'll see if they settle into a nice groove with it this week. But I will tell you all about what happens over the next seven days when we do this all over again one week from tonight. That's right, same bat time, same bat channel, 10 p.m. Sunday nights, Sportsnet 650. That's the place to find the only place you're going to find professional wrestling talk on the radio in Vancouver. Until then, I have been and will continue to be Justin Morissette, and you've been listening to Wrestle Central on Sportsnet 650.